Um, you may be seated. We have a, a longer reading today, so if you would be seated and open up to Isaiah 30, verse 18. Part of this we read last week, but we really didn't get a chance to get into these verses in the second half of Isaiah 30, so we're going to cover that and then Isaiah 31. So Isaiah 30, verse 18 through chapter 31. This is the word of God. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion. In Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. He surely will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right, or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, the livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in that day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel, and the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod, and every strike of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them, for a burning place has long been prepared Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. 
Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect it and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from people, from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful, majestic, challenging section of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it, to believe it, to receive it, and to respond to it with love and obedience, trust. Father, write your word on our hearts, deep in our souls, that it might change who we are at our very core, that we might be conformed more and more to the likeness of Jesus, whose glory is ultimately displayed here for us for our encouragement, for our correction, for our training in righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About 20 years ago, a very different kind of show came on ABC on Sunday evenings, and I loved it. And if you're old enough, you probably remember it. It was Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Remember that show with Ty Pennington and they would go to someone's house and it was, it was unlike anything that had been on television before that. Now there's been a lot of shows that imitated it in the 20 years since then, but it was very, very different. You'd, you, you'd get this deserving family who had been through some hardship or maybe had a particular need and they would be sent away on a vacation while, while dozens of home improvement contractors, like 100 guys, would just come and would completely renovate their house in astounding ways. And then there was always some surprise that was worked in, too, like something that was done that was just way over the top or different or unexpected, or somebody who would show up to be with the family, or some gift that was given to pay for something that wasn't expected, like a medical need or something like that. And, you know, sometimes the family would have tried and failed themselves to do the work. They knew that they needed this work done on their house, and so they were, they were trying, and they just didn't, didn't really work. 
And many of them just thought, okay, they're going to come and they're going to do the thing that we tried to do and that we failed to do. And what they didn't realize is they were actually going to completely redo their house. And later, I think, later seasons, they actually built people homes. But anyway. Um, and so I, I love that show, at least for the first season or two. And then, of course, if you know the story, like some people you just can't be nice to. Um, but anyway, uh, in Isaiah 30, what's the connection here? Well, in Isaiah 30, you really can't say that Jerusalem and Judah are a deserving family who have done so much good, and it would be just right for someone to come along and help them. In fact, they're kind of the opposite of that. They were rebellious. They were obstinate. They were stubborn. But they were in a tight spot. They did need help. They needed help. It was beyond their own capacity to be able to save themselves. But they thought that they knew where they could get the help they needed. They thought they could send to Egypt. You see, they were in a situation where the Assyrians, the largest empire in the world at that time, had already conquered most of the surrounding nations. They had already conquered Israel, the northern nation of God's people that was bigger than they were. They had conquered the Philistines. They had conquered all the surrounding nations, and they were, they were kind of circling in, literally circling in, and drawing the noose tighter and tighter. And so they thought, we need the Assyrian help. But in doing so, they were very short-sighted because they missed what their deeper need was. The most pressing problem facing them was not, in fact, the invading Assyrian army just wasn't. The most pressing problem facing them was their own idolatry, which they failed to take seriously at all. But also, not only were they being short-sighted to their deeper and more eternal needs, but even if they were right to be so narrowly focused on the Assyrian threat, their assumption that they needed a nation and an army large enough to scare off the Assyrians was also misplaced. They didn't need Egypt because they had the Lord. Now, what does any of this have to do with us living here in America in 2024? Well, everything. First of all, we need to see ourselves as being just as idolatrous and foolish and undeserving <laughs> as those people in Jerusalem and Judah. We may not have images of silver and gold, but we have our heart idols. We have those things that we're trusting in for help, that we're looking to instead of the Lord. We also have a tendency to be very short-sighted and very immediate circumstance-focused. We, we tend to lose sight of our eternal blessings. We tend to lose sight of the eternal perspective, and we get locked in on things that are right in front of us, and when we do so, we also tend to think that what we need for what is right in front of us is something that we can get our hands on, right, to fix it. Something the world can offer, something they sell at Home Depot, something that you can take out a loan for, something that you can figure out, right? We'll, we'll get this done, right? And so we're really just the same. It may not be Assyrians, but whatever it is that we're facing, we're losing sight of the eternal perspective. We're not dealing with the idols in our lives, and we're not seeking the Lord the way that we should. And so this passage is directly for us. 
And what I love about this passage is that God is so incredibly gracious to his people. We all know that the Lord is good and the Lord is great. We've been singing about it. We've been hearing about it. Here in church on Sunday morning, it's easy to say, yes, amen. The Lord is good. The Lord is great, right? But it's so much truer than we grasp. In verses 18 to 26 of Isaiah 30, which we read last week but didn't really get a time to dig into, God is promising to save his people, but the language here is so much greater than they understood. God is going to answer them, but he's going to answer them in a way that is beyond their expectations. He says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And then he gives these promises of what he's going to do. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You'll say to them, be gone. And he'll give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground and bread, the produce of the livestock, which will be rich and plenteous. And that day your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. In the day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. Did you catch that some of the language in those verses goes far beyond the simple answer of, don't worry about it. I'm going to chase the Assyrians out of your land. It's going to be okay. It goes far beyond that. Because God makes promises that are even greater than what they were asking for. They wanted one thing, get the Assyrians out of here. And they were willing to send their treasure on camels and donkeys in trains through the Negev desert to Egypt to try to get the Assyrians out of here. But God says, okay, I'm going to do more. I'm going to be more gracious and more merciful than that. In fact, I'm going to be more gracious and more merciful than you could ever begin to imagine. I'm going to forgive all of your sins and I'm going to wipe away all of your enemies. In fact, so complete will be your deliverance that in verse 19, he promises, you shall weep no more. What? Weep no more? Even if the Assyrians go away, there's still stuff that happens in life that causes you to weep. What God is hinting at here is something that ultimately comes to pass 
at the end of all things in this age, in Revelation 21, when God promises, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You see, when God goes so far as to say, you will weep no more, he means forever. No more weeping that is coming. And when the Lord promises, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, that's what they were living through right then, yet your teacher will not hide himself from you anymore. Your eyes will see your teacher. Now, in the context here, there's no doubt who your teacher is. It's the Lord himself. You can see in the ESV, they've capitalized teacher to bring that home because who's the one who's been the teacher of Israel, but no one's ever seen? It's been the Lord. This promise was so astounding that when God kept this promise and the Lord, the teacher of Israel, came into the world in human flesh and walked among them as the teacher of Israel, they didn't believe it. Even though we did miracles to confirm it, feeding 5,000 and, and calming the storm and healing people who were known to be paralyzed for decades or born blind, he did so many things to prove, and then he said who he was, and they wouldn't believe it. It was too hard to believe that God himself would actually show up and walk among them, even though that's exactly what he had promised to do. And here's the promise for us. Revelation 21 says that when we get to the end of all things... God himself will be with us as our God, and we will be with him as his people. Our eyes will see our teacher. We will behold him face to face. And that day is coming. He came, and he's coming again. And when we see him, we will finally be completely rid of all of our idols forever. I mean, if the gods changed our hearts, we should hate our idols, and we should be turning from our idols to the Lord. But we know that if we know our hearts, and we know the world, and we know the reality of life in this world, it's a constant struggle. I was talking with somebody yesterday about, about sanctification, about what we believe about the process of sanctification, and we believe that it is an, an irreconcilable war between the spirit and our flesh. And that's life in this world. It's irreconcilable. But it will be. At the end of this life, it will be settled finally. And all the idols will be just gone. They'll just be gone. We'll finally see them for what they are and never have any attraction to them ever again. And so I think there's, in, in this passage, you have uh, what we often get in Old Testament prophets, which is there will be an immediate answer to the cry of the people. 
But then God is letting them peek beyond that immediate answer to see the far horizon of what's coming. And that is that the answer, the ultimate answer that God will finally bring is staggeringly better than anybody could ever dream. So even when we get to verses 23 to 26, we get a picture of good, peaceful life living on the abundance of the land, which in some measure, the people of Jerusalem and Judah were able to enjoy after the Assyrians were cleared out of their land. It was really just the people in Jerusalem and a small remnant of people because the Assyrians came through and destroyed every fortified city in Judah. But once the Assyrians were gone, they were able to enjoy life. They were able to plant and harvest. They were able to eat of the fruit of the ground. They were able to tend their livestock. But, but in this picture, too, God goes beyond that. Because in verse 25, he says, on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. Well, that didn't happen. And what does that mean? That means there's not going to be any place in the whole world where there will be any sort of want, any sort of, you know, lack. When we flew from Brussels down to Uganda, we flew over the Western Sahara, um, and, and it was uh, daytime, so you could actually see outside. That's really the first time, on, that was my sixth trip to Uganda, but the first time I've flown over that, because we last couple times we went to Istanbul, and you fly down, you follow the Nile, which is pretty cool, you're fo following the Nile River all the way down, but this was, this was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of the Sahara Desert, and it was unreal. It was just it was just staggering, this vast wasteland. And you realize, like, the world is full of places. There's just, there's just thousands of square miles of land in this world where nothing can live and no one can live. Just forget about it, right? But in the new creation that's coming, apparently that won't be the case. Life is going to flourish everywhere, on every high hill, every place. And we know that he's talking not about the immediate deliverance, if it's not clear enough from 25, 26, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven suns in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. That is a day that is yet to come. That is a day when, in fact, Revelation puts it even more strongly by saying they're no longer going to have the need of the light of the sun or the moon because the Lord will be among them as their light and the Lamb will be their lamp. So we will be in the light of God and all of our brokenness will be bound up and all of our wounds will be healed. That day is coming. And God wants his people, when they're surrounded by the Assyrians and they can't see past the immediate danger of, we are all going to die. We need help from Egypt. God wants us, them to lift up their eyes and realize, not only is he going to deliver them from the Assyrians, but he has something so glorious planned for them. And he wants us to see the same thing.
He wants us to see the same thing. I don't know what you're dealing with, but whatever it is, God wants you to know that not only is he going to carry you through this, but a deliverance is coming our way that will make everything perfectly healed, body and soul, creation and cosmos, with a glorious, greater salvation that far exceeds any expectation we could dream of, and it will be forever. It will be forever. And with that perspective, God wants us to look back at the Assyrians in the land, whatever they may be in your life, and realize (laughs) if God is able to do that and is going to do that, then surely he can take care of this pathetic little human army that thinks they're greater than everything. And so God talks in further passages in here about how he's going to come and he's going to burn and he's going to drive away and he's going to terrorize. And he also wants them to see that the help they're looking for is not really help at all, right? The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. And then he says later um, in verse 8 of chapter 31, the Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man and a sword not of man shall devour him and he shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be put to forced labor. He wants us to trust him for that which is our truest eternal need, which is to be reconciled to God, to have eternal life, and to believe that he's going to bring that in a very powerful way. And he wants us to trust him for the things that we are facing now and to realize that the help we're seeking that's not him is woefully inadequate. (laughs) And it's not actually going to satisfy us the way that we think it's going to satisfy us. This made me think of a story that is found in the Synoptic Gospels of the paralyzed man whose friends brought him to Jesus. Remember that story? It's a paralyzed man. Four of his friends bring him to Jesus. And they can't get into the house because it's so crowded. And so they go up on the roof and they tear a hole in the roof and they lower their friend down by the four corners of a mat. They lower him down and set him down right in front of Jesus. Did it ever puzzle you what Jesus says to the man? He says, your sins are forgiven you. Why did Jesus say that? seems rather obvious what the guy was looking for, what his friends were looking for. I don't think his friends were up there tearing off the roof and lowering down their friend to hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven you. They heard about Jesus, the miracle worker. They heard about Jesus, the one who, who was able to heal anybody or anything. They wanted to hear Jesus say, rise up and walk. But he said, your sins are forgiven you. Why did he do that? because that's what the man most needed. His paralysis was a temporary condition. It would only last for the rest of his life. 
but his sin was an eternal problem that would haunt him for all of eternity if it was not dealt with. So Jesus spoke to the greater need, and Jesus provided the greater need. And then it was to demonstrate that he had that authority. Because everyone's looking around, and the Pharisees who are there are shocked, and they're whispering to each other, and he knows exactly what they're thinking. And he says, I'm going to show you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Because which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Now, here's what we have to think along with what Jesus is thinking. The greater need is your sins are forgiven. But it's also the easier thing to say, right? Because that's not something you can see happen. So the harder thing to say, but actually for Jesus, the easier thing to do <laughs> is to say, get up and walk. And so he does that. He says, so that you would know that I have authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise and walk. And the guy got up and took up his mat and he walked. And they were all astonished. But I want us to consider something. Why did Jesus heal the man's paralysis? Not because that's what he most needed, but because he wanted to demonstrate very clearly to everyone that he had the authority to forgive sins. God knows what we most need, and sometimes what we think we most need isn't what we most need. And here's another little insight from that story that I think we should think about. For us as believers, we're here in church, we profess faith in Jesus. We believe he died for our sins. He rose again from the dead. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. He's going to bring us into his eternal glory. And we'll talk about all that stuff. And it's easy to say, isn't it? It's easy to say that. I believe my sins are forgiven. I believe that I'm a child of God. I believe that I'm going to be with him forever when I die or when he comes back, whichever is first. I believe that. It's easy to say although it was much harder for Jesus to accomplish that. But sometimes it's harder for us to say, I'm going to trust God to heal my marriage. I'm going to trust God to bring my wayward child back to himself. I'm going to trust God to provide a job for me that he knows is right for me. Those are much lesser needs. They're much easier for God to provide. But it's harder for us sometimes to say that because it's like tangible. And what if we don't get it? And would that mean that God failed us? And our minds start swirling. And we need to step back and we need to realize the God who is able to save us for all eternity, the God who is able to rebuild the cosmos with a new heavens and a new earth is not wringing his hands and sweating over our job situation. He's got it in hand. And he has wisdom and he has grace to heal our marriage, to save our children, to bring us through cancer. He can take care of those things we need 
to trust him. And we need to ask him to do what is his good pleasure and what we need. So what God is calling us to in these chapters, I think, is two things. One is a grander vision of what it is that he has promised to us and what it is that he is doing in us and through us. God has made us his children, his heirs, and his ambassadors. And through us, he wants to send out the gospel to our household, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our community, and to the ends of the earth, and use us as his human means to bring people into the kingdom, to see his kingdom spread throughout the whole world to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and to glorify his name forever. And when that task is complete, when, when, when all the nations have been reached, when the gospel's gone as far as it's supposed to go, he's going to bring us all into his eternal glorious kingdom, and there will be no more pain and no more death and no more crying and no more job loss and no more financial stress and no more worry over, over children and no more dealing with cancer and no more anything except for love and joy and peace with the Lord in a good new creation forever. So he wants us to have a grander vision. But I also think he wants us to have a more practical, boots-on-the-ground faith for the things that are right in front of us, for the Assyrians who are in the land, to believe God is in control. Remember, he had said chapters and chapters before this, he had said exactly how far the Assyrians were going to get. So they're going to get this far and no farther, and they're not going to lay a finger on Jerusalem. He had said that already, years before. He has told us what? What has he told us? All things work together for the good of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Your father knows what you need before you ask it. My God will supply your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. All the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. So we need a boots on the ground, practical faith that says the God who has eternity in hand certainly has today, tomorrow, this week in hand. And we can trust him. It doesn't mean we're irresponsible. Because sometimes God's feeding us with the bread of affliction because we're being idolatrous and we're being foolish. And he's trying to break us of our idolatry. So sometimes we need to go to him. We need to say, Lord, why is my marriage in trouble? Why are we having such a hard time communicating with each other? What is going on? And there may be sin that needs to be repented of and confessed and forgiveness that needs to be extended. We may need to see the gospel applied to those areas of our lives. We seek him, but we seek him trusting him. And we don't just try to figure it out on our own. We don't make the mistake that is so common in America of saying, Oh, my marriage is in, in a bad place. We're not communicating well with each other. We're not, uh, you know, we're not doing well. The kids are 
fighting with each other. I don't know what to do. I know what we need. Let's go spend a week in Disney World. Because that'll solve everything. <laughs> right? Um, I don't know. My, my kids are way past that age, and we managed to get through that whole thing with that guy. Honestly, the thought of a week in Disney World, I just would rather be in a coma. I don't know. Um, true confessions. <laughs> but some people are like, that's the solution, right? But that's the Egyptian horses and chariots, or whatever it might be, right? Whatever it might be. I'll cut corners at work and cheat a little bit so I can bring home a little bit more money, or I'll, I'll you know, take that job with that company that I know is unethical and disreputable, but it pays really well, and so I'm just going to suck it up and do it, and I know I'm going to be asked to do things that aren't really, but I'm just going to, because we need the money, right? And so whatever it is, God's saying, no, trust me, hear my word, live according to my spirit, and I will take care of you. I have eternity in hand. I certainly have today in hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you care for us. In every way, day by day, you are the one who holds us in your hands, who provides for us, who leads us, who protects us. And you ask us to trust you and obey you, follow you. Father, give us the grace to do that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.